Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Green. Welcome. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Welcome yourself, my friend. I feel like uh, you're slightly discombobulated, but that's okay because we have a cool guest on. And I know whenever we have somebody who worked on Blade Runner, it's... uh, the air is electric around here. But before we do that, yes. two things, two things. First off, I can't help but notice that you have the original facehugger prop from the very earliest iteration of the Perfect Organism logo proudly hanging off of your mic stand right now. <laughs> is that right? That is right. Yeah. I haven't seen that in a long time. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is we got some new patrons to get a shout out. So I'm going to do that quickly now, and then I'll hand it over to Jamie to introduce our guest for the day. Okay. So let's go back to uh, mid-October. We have Chris and Ryan. That's a two for one. Thank you, Chris and Ryan. Uh, Darren, Rob Harvey, Varun, and just as of a couple days ago, Julie Margerson. Margerson, Margerson, let me know. Uh, thank you all so much for for joining the uh, the ship. We're really happy to have you. Yes, thank you. And uh, today's episode is really special. And to an earlier point, I am discombobulated because we're recording at 9 a.m. And we usually record at 6 p.m. my time, L.A. time. So, you know, I have much much longer time to get ready for the day but today's episode we have bill george on who was a model maker on blade runner who worked on the storied blimp for blade runner which is of course my personal favorite i've been looking for a model version of that for years welcome to the show bill thank you so much for coming on well thanks for having me this is exciting can you walk us through how you got involved with model making and vfx in the industry in those early days yeah, you know, my history was when I was a kid, I was very much into science fiction and fantasy. Uh, Star Trek, Lost in Space, they were my two first loves. And of course, there were model kits that were created for those uh, those shows and built them as a kid, as anybody would. And then I kind of moved beyond that and got into motorcycles and more adult things. But then when I was in high school, Star Wars came out and it really brought back that whole love of the design and spaceships and science fiction. But at the time, there weren't any model kits. Uh, As you both know, the film was a huge surprise hit, so they didn't have a lot of licensing there ready to go. It came much later. So if I wanted to build models, I had to build them from scratch. And I was older. I think I was 17 or 18 at the time. And um, so was able to start doing that. And of course, my first models were very crude. But um, every time I built one, I got better. At the time, after Star Wars, they started having these huge science fiction conventions in Los Angeles. I mean, they were always there, but once Star Wars came along, it really took off, and they were massive. They would take over entire hotels. And so I would go to those to get reference material to build these models, because that was another thing that was on in very short supply. And through going to those conventions, I ended up showing my models, meeting this uh, gentleman named Greg Jean, who uh, built the mothership from Close Encounters and, uh, of course, knew who he was. And eventually, he ended up hiring me to work on Star Trek The Motion Picture. Mr. Spock, every minute brings that object closer to Earth. I need you. I am convinced we are inside a living machine. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Which was, of course, a childhood dream come true. You know, the the idea that this canceled series would come back and I'd be able to be associated with super associated with it was super exciting um so then i was my wagon was hitched to greg for a while and uh we worked on a number of projects together including one from the heart which was at zoetrope studios uh in los angeles and then the next thing that greg was supposed to go on to was this science fiction film called blade runner and of course i was super excited about being on that project because i was a big alien fan and this was ridley scott's next film 
And so uh, when I was done with my work on One from the Heart, Greg moved me over to the Blade Runner model shop. And it, that was being run at the time by Mark Stetson, who was the quote unquote model shop foreman. Um, so I went over and started working on it. And then what happened was One from the Heart blew up and Greg had to stay on it uh, because they kind of rethought a bunch of the effect sequences. And that meant that Mark then got kind of pushed up into the model shop supervisor role. And luckily, uh, he knew me by then, so he kept me on. I just want to point out what like a nerd dream it is to just be a kid making models in your basement, you know, have Star Trek or have Star Wars come out and then have your first job in Hollywood be working on the actual Star Trek movie. That must have been like such a rush for you. Um, what do you think it is before we get to the model shop stuff and Blade Runner? What do you think it is about model making in particular that appeals to you? Like, like why do you think you've always kind of gravitated towards this? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, there's something intrinsically relatable to miniatures. And, you know, for many years when I was in the ILM model shop, that's the department that everybody wanted to, to get a tour of because it's so easy to understand. And in a way, for me, the the spaceships that we were building, they were the stars of the movie. You know, that's what you were bouncing the light off of to create these beautiful images. Um, and just as a craftsman, it takes a lot of skill, a lot of creativity. It's a, it's a real challenging thing to do. Um, and the other thing is, it's much more manageable. You know, if you're building a set, you can't do that by yourself. But a miniature, a model, something on your desk, you can. Awesome. So uh, something that I have to say, you know, we share pictures all the time on our social media pages. And I think you're in some of them because we very uh -huh. frequently share things from the model shop, which has become a storied, you know, part of Blade Runner history of science fiction history. As you know, better than anyone, the, the miniatures in Blade Runner have gone on to really set the standard in terms of what you can accomplish practically in a film. And um, so I think the model shop photos really appeal to people when we share them. And can you kind of give us some sense of the atmosphere there? That was on the back lot, right? At Warner Brothers? No, no. The uh, the visual effects facility that did it was Doug Trumbull's that did the, the majority of the visual effects. And it kept changing names. It was Magic Cam. It was Future General. When I was working on Blade Runner, I think it was called EEG, Entertainment Effects Group. But unlike ILM, which kind of started up and then was always uh, working, Doug's facility, it would do a project like Close Encounters, and then every everybody would leave and it would shut down, and they'd basically put things in mothballs, and then Star Trek The Motion Picture would come along, they'd get a big contract, and it would kind of ramp back up. So that's what happened on Blade Runner. It had been shut down. The Maxella facility, which is around the corner, was the one where they had the cameras. That was kind of the main one. And around the corner on Glencoe Avenue was the model shop. And model shop, it was just basically a big industrial structure. But I had worked there before on Close Encounters Revised Edition and Star Trek The Motion Picture. So it was a familiar space to me. But once again, it was just an empty building. They rented it. We moved our tools in and off we go. So what is that process like? So day one, you're you're on Blade Runner. What's the first thing that you're doing? And I, I'm asking that question, I mean, I, as someone who has seen many, 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 much like Patrick, behind the scenes, making ofs, people in model shops building things, and they're cool, but I don't think our listeners, and definitely me, have a full understanding of what goes into uh, a production that size with effects mm -hmm. like that. And of course that model that you built was fairly large, uh, probably more of a bigature than a miniature in terms of its size. How do you step? And I know that wasn't the only thing that you're working on. You weren't just working on blade on the blimp. You were doing other things. What's the first day like on a production like that? <laughs> well, usually on your first day, it's like, where's my desk? And it's it's the basics of getting things set up. And you bring in your tools and you get set up. And a lot of times it's reading the script, looking at the storyboards, getting familiar with the project. And it was Mark's job to kind of dole out the work to people. Honestly, I can't remember what the very first thing I did on that project was, but it became clear early on that, that kind of detailing, fine detailing was my forte. 
And so they would pair us, they would put us together with a bunch of people. Uh, we had engineers that would do like building the big uh, spinner. That had a lot of bells and whistles and things that moved. And of course, the armature, which had to come from six different points. And so the engineer kind of took the lead on that. We had blueprints, the blueprints from production that we used as a guide. So you could sometimes be doing double duty where two or three people would be working on the same thing. As long as it all matched the scale and the, and the design of the blueprints, it would all come together. And then there was a really good pattern maker named Tom Pock, and he was put in charge of sculpting the gel yutong wood uh, to, to build the shapes. And then, like I said, I did a lot of the detailing on the inside, the interior, and also sculpted the uh, Deckard and Graf uh, figures inside. And they had little motors in their heads so they could move around, very much like um, the uh, twin pod cloud cars in Return of the Jedi. That was such a cool effect. So, you know, it's a team. It's a team. We all work together. And there was electronics people as well and painters. So it kind of a lot of projects bounce back and forth. But, you know, of course, my focus was to establish myself as a model maker so I could keep doing this. So my focus was really just trying to do the best job I could. And of course, so you get the blueprints from production who I'm sure yeah. get some of the conceptual designs from, you know, people like Sid Mead. And yep. what level of detail, like are, are in terms of greebling and kind of detail work, are you given some latitude to bring your own self to that? Or is it really kind of following a schematic? It depends on the project. The The spinner, of course, had to match the full size version that they were doing. And we were in contact with the company that was doing that. But the very first spinner that was ever done was the little, it's like a 12, 13 inch one. And if you see photographs of that, because I took some photographs out in the parking lot, you'll see that it has the guns on it, which are in the uh, blueprints, because that was the first one done. It was later they ran out of money and they couldn't afford to do the guns that the bubble lights on the top kind of came along. But since I painted it and it was the first one done, I added some things to it, which actually made their way onto the full size spinner. Um, of course, we have concept art, we have the blueprints, and our goal is to to follow those. But the concept art, Sydney concept art was from the front and it didn't show the back. And I felt the back was a little plain. So I took, it had a bumper and I did kind of a crosshatch pattern on the bumper. And surprisingly, I saw that show up on the full size version. So that was cool. They did a little more sophisticated kind of a zigzag pattern than what I did, but that was fun. There are so many questions that I have. Uh, I guess maybe uh, one thing about Blade Runner is that it's lived in. It's a very lived in future. And um, I know that that process, at least for the sets, took a long time for them to kind of layer things and um, uh, in terms of the back lot of Warner Brothers and building it out to make it look like a, a different world and not the back lot of Warner Brothers. When you're working on models, how are you, are you, getting information from I don't, maybe the assistant director or Ridley Scott or someone saying, okay, we need to make this look more lived in, more detailed. How do you guys know in uh, while you're working on something like that, that you've done enough? <laughs> it's funny you say that because at ILM very often, uh, the way I describe what our role is, is like if we were doing uh, ballroom dancing, we're the follow. It's our job to do a good job dancing, but also to follow whatever the lead is doing. And so absolutely, we were we were seeing reference. There was photographs taken, delivered to us of this is the vibe. This is the look. And we did the exact same thing. There's a bunch of buildings that were built for that show that were classic like Los Angeles facades. And then we just pipes and hoses and air conditioners and and then the the fun painting of all the things the patina and just added layer upon layer upon layer and then of course those things were all shot in smoke which gives it this really great depth and the feeling you saw the light beams that kind of stuff so it all adds up and once again it's a team it's it's not just the miniatures it's also the the uh, the camera guys that shoot this and the people who light it it all has to kind of work in order to match what they've done. And hopefully not just match, but elevate it. My mind is full of questions too, but they're probably stupider than Jamie's because Jamie, although he won't toot his own horn, is a very good model maker sculptor in his own right. So he probably already knows some of the things that I'm going to ask it's about. It's a hobby. It's a hobby. Well, you're very good at it. Uh, and obviously our guest, Bill, is extremely good at it. Um, but what, what I'm wondering is, 
so you know different materials show up different on film i'm assuming the full size mm -hmm. spinner wasn't made out of you know wood with uh, things grafted onto it or you know yeah. plastic right yeah. so how do you make it appear correct in camera when it's scaled down like how do you make the objects look right on film not just in person well, you know, that's a really good question. One of the things that happened, and I think you'll notice this in photographs of the, the spinner miniatures, is they're different colors. The Now, we've got the actual paint. They sent over some of the paint that they were using on the full-size spinners, but it was too dark. So if you see that the 12-inch version, it's got that really dark, dark blue. And then the 44-incher, which was really the hero version, is much lighter. And that's because... You have to put so much light on something that's dark in order to get exposure. So that was cheated a little bit. Hopefully, when you see it in the film, you don't perceive that. But what you're talking about is how do you make a model look real and 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 match the full size? So that comes down to the camera work and depth of field, the lens choice, those type of things, and also the speed and how it moves. That's one of the things that I think a lot of people have issues with computer graphics is anything is possible. You don't have the limitations of the physical cameras and boom arms and things like that. And so when you do these crazy moves, it's obviously false. So there are a lot of uh, pieces, I guess you could say, uh, in terms of things that were built for Blade Runner. Um, this is a bit of a two-part question. I don't know how much, how many things you worked on. Obviously, we know you worked on the blimp. We know you right, worked on right. the spinner. I want to call it the spiniature because it was small. <laughs> um, <laughs> what? Let's talk about this. This the miniature spinner first. Okay. What's the time on from beginning to start constructing something like that to the end? Is it something where? there is a beginning to the end or are you starting something like that? I mean, obviously I know that there are other people working in, in this, yeah, yeah. um, in this, in this space, but do you say, okay, I'm doing this today. And then tomorrow I'm going to go work on this thing over here. I don't really know. Even if you have, I don't know if you were involved in the construction of Tyrell, the Tyrell court building, which is of course iconic and monumental and amazing. What's the, what, what kind of time are we talking Oh, that's always the question that people ask, and it's a really hard one to answer because I'm not keeping track of how many hours I spent here or there. But people, they want to know how many hours, how long did it take to build something like this? And I, I it's just really, really hard to say. You know, the spinners, I would work on it. And then, yes, uh, I also did a lot of the detailing on the Tyrell Pyramid that was cast in uh, clear acrylic and then painted and the light was blocked. And then John Vidor went in and used a, a drill and drilled all the little tiny holes that were then windows on the inside. But um, I only worked on part of that. Like I said, it was, it was a big team effort. So it's really hard to say exactly the time, the amount of time. Uh, I can tell you there are producers out there that would be able to tell you exactly because they, they chart that stuff. But at ILM now, we do keep track of every project with a separate number. Back then, it was just, oh, this needs to be done by next Tuesday, that type of thing. And so they really didn't track exactly how many man hours went into a miniature. But one thing I will say, Jamie, is that, and a lot of people don't realize this, there was always pressure on us to do it fast, do it good, get it done, get it out the door. And it wasn't just sitting around and, oh, I think I'm going to make something cool today. You know, they were, we, we had assignments assigned to us and then uh, they would say, how long is this going to take? And then it was up to to me to hit that deadline or to inform them that it was going to take longer. Sounds stressful. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, it wasn't that bad. No, it's all, it's all part of the job. And I'm sure you guys deal with the same thing, deadlines and it's all part of the, part of the job. Yeah. And I'm sure when you're around other people who are crunching alongside you, it's easier because it's kind of a shared, you know, it's yeah. we're all in the struggle together a little bit. Um, I do want to make sure we save some time to talk about the blimp in particular, because that's something that you were so associated with and it's so iconic. And uh, can you kind of just take us from the beginning, you know, through that process of how that was created, what some of the surprising aspects of it might be for people? Um, how did you pull that piece <laughs> of magic off? Well, um, it wasn't just me. Uh, and in fact, this is a really good example of that. 
So it's this weird thing where we're just told, oh, uh, there's going to be a blimp. And then it's like, well, <laughs> how big should it be? You know, we start getting these parameters of what this is, how big we want it to be. This is what it has to do. And then I was actually given some drawings that Ridley had done, very crude sketches. And I think I've still got them around here somewhere. Um, at the same time, there was this, I think it was called the Book of Alien, but there was, it showed Ron Cobb paintings and a bunch of, um, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you've got it too. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> So I looked through that and there was all these really cool things that I liked. And I thought, oh, this is really nice. And it was so, I had so much freedom to kind of add in what I wanted to do. So there was never a sketch of it. I just kind of figured it out. And I'm a little bit lazy and I thought, oh, I don't want to sculpt this thing. So I figured out a way to create the pattern for it um, physically. And what I did was I built this box with baffles, the shape that I wanted the blimp to be. And then I covered it with this really thick latex sheet. And then I mixed up like gallons of plaster and poured the plaster onto the sheet, which then the weight of the plaster kind of caused it to balloon between the fins that I had put in there and created that, that blimp shape. And then once that was done, I made a mold of it, cast it in fiberglass, and then it's a, a top and bottom shell. And that creates the basic shape of the blimp. Now, I don't know where I got these from, but there were these things called post scanners that were created for close encounters. And what they were was this big mechanism with stepper motors up here and then a long black tube. And at the bottom was a little prism. And there was a super bright light that hit the prism. Actually, it wasn't a prism. It was a, it was a triangular mirror. And the stepper motors controlled the angle of that mirror. And so the top of the blimp came off and these two things went in the top and then just the tips popped out of the bottom. And those were the things that created the kind of wigwag in the smoke. They were left over from close encounters. And I'm sure you've seen the photos that I took of the early blimp. The one it was it's very, very simple, but it's got the the advertising billboards on either side. It's got a cockpit in the front, engines in the back. When I left the show to go work at ILM, I guess Doug wasn't happy with it. And he sent it back to the model shop and another model maker named Mike Fink added all the little um, like advertisements on the side. There's a bunch of like decals of different companies and things like that. And they also put tons of these, I think they were left over Hades landscape uh, acid edge towers all around the outside and a bunch of fiber optics and these little teeny tiny light bulbs. And that kind of elevated it to this next level. I wasn't super excited by that because I called it the mother blimp because I felt like they were trying to make it look like the mothership from Close Encounters. And I have to say, too, when I first saw the film, I was so disappointed because you couldn't even see the models because they had these big light flares all over them, very much like Close Encounters, which, of course, is part of the look and part of the fun. But as a model maker, I was like, you can't even see the spinner. It's just all these flashy lights. I never put those two together. Like, I, I love Close Encounters, a big fan. But now that you mention it, I can see some similarities there for sure, especially on the mothership and the blimp. Um, there, and you you started talking about a, a question I had in terms of the level of detail on the blimp itself. So I, I'm sure you're familiar with the Adam Savage um, episode where he recreates the blimp. He he makes mm -hmm. the, a model of it and the kind of. Well, I think it work, was a kit. I thought he made it. I, I think it was a kit that Jason Eaton created. I'm not sure, but. I haven't seen the episode, but I'm familiar with it. Okay. Yeah. I, well, I, I definitely know that there are a team of people working on this replica of the blimp and the level of work that went in to make it as detailed as the original, which I've seen the original at the Warner Brothers lot. Well, I don't know how many you guys made. I've seen that one that's there. Is that the only one? That's only one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's beautiful. It used to be a little bit lower. Now it's kind of hanging above um, a doorway or something. And, mm. and it's amazing. But again, you stare at this thing and you can't obviously preaching to the choir here, the person who helped build it. You can't kind of comprehend the level of detail in something like that and something so small. So you talked about having it being sent back for more detail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is Was there ever a, a time 
where say Ridley Scott walks in and he wants to see these things like, Hey, how does this looking? How's it going to vibe with the rest of the aesthetic of this film? Um, and that, so were there times you're like, okay, we feel like we're at a stopping point before you left the show. And they're like, no, 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 you need more. What, what, I guess what that, what was that process like? Well, uh, you know, Doug Trumbull was there. He was the overall effects supervisor. Um, I can't remember the, there were a couple other people that were very high up that were driving this and presenting to Ridley. And of course they were the ones that would take, get the information back to us, but it's all part of the job and you have to be adaptable. You have to be that follow that when they say, no, we're going to go this way, then yep, absolutely. We'll do that. One thing I will mention is they really underestimated how much of the streets we were going to need in miniature. And that's something that's been written out before. And that's where the My Millennium Falcon got brought in and made into a building. And it wasn't to be clever or silly or whatever. It was because they were desperate for anything that they could put onto the street to extend the set because it just didn't look big enough. And there was, and that was another thing that you know we built what we were told, like six buildings. Here you go. And then once they got it in front of the camera, it was clear that was not going to work. And there were, there's a lot of, and that's part of the fun of working on films. I think is when you're shooting from the hip and you got to solve a problem and you work together. And that happened a number of times on that project. That was one of them. Another one was the Void Kampf machine which they had built a prop for and they were shooting it on a Friday and Ridley was not happy with it. And so we got this call like at five o'clock on Friday saying, you guys need to rebuild the void conf machine. We're going to shoot it on Monday morning. You need to work the whole weekend to get it done, which we did. And it was, it was a blast. What did you change about it? We rebuilt it from the ground up completely. Yeah. The, the one, I don't remember seeing the one that was built previous but it didn't really match the sid mead design which was gorgeous and so we went back to that sid mead design which had the the bellows and then i built the little eye at the end which has like a norelco somebody gave me like uh, the metal tips for some sort of electric shaver because they thought oh this is kind of a cool shape one of them ended up on the void comp machine the other one ended up on the klingon communicator in star trek 3 <laughs> That's amazing. I was going to say the final version of the VK test really does look like the Sid Mead artwork yeah. that we all know. So, yeah. well. so I, was, I was assuming you brought it closer to it. Did you work with Lawrence Paul at all? No, it was, no, really he was Doug Trumbull, production right? designer, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I was remember again, I was very, very far down the totem pole <laughs> right at the very bottom. Um so, but information, like if, if Lauren Paul had some sort of comment, it would come down to us from the higher ups, but he wasn't coming over to the model shop. Um, I do remember seeing Ridley Scott on set when we were shooting the street scenes and Doug taking him through and showing him and he seemed happy. He seemed happier than the, the night I went to the sets and saw them shooting. He was not happy that night. <laughs> he was yelling and screaming. Um, can you tell us a little more about Doug Trumbull? Because uh, as as you know, we lost him pretty recently. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. You know, he's somebody that we would have been a, a dream guest to have on this show, and we never got to. So, can you tell us a little bit about him and what he was like? I I had very very little interaction with him, sadly, but um, obviously a giant in the industry, uh, way ahead of his time all the high high frame rate you know all that stuff that he was trying to push back in the 70s and 80s which has come to fruition now super talented guy and of course you know having worked on 2001 it's just amazing and he was about my age when he did that that's crazy uh so my next question is about the context of what you're doing so 
how important is it when you start a project like this and you're involved in a project like this and you're working on miniatures or or, or, or models that you know the film that you're working on, that you understand how it works within the larger picture. Is that something that's important in a model shop for model makers? Like, okay, this is for th this is for this scene, and this is what's where it's going to be and how it's going to play. Um, and I would, uh, and I, I'm asking that question because there have been people that we have talked to who worked on Blade Runner who who have said to us, "We didn't really know what we were doing. We didn't really know what kind of movie we were making." So. Did you understand fully the world that you were helping to create? Oh, that's a that's a really good good question. Um, we did see some footage from live action. Of course, that was a way to kind of know what you're doing. But the vibe, especially in the model shop, I think it was something that everybody understood. The like you said, the used, the lived-in look, the all the patina the grease the retrofitting all that it's like if you understand that you kind of understand the film of course what we were doing wasn't a part of the story it was just setting the look of the environment that was around there and it was clear you know it's it's like characters you understood that the Ty tyrell pyramid was more uh high-end you know it wasn't dirty it was clean it was beautiful it was at a, a, a different more uh, kind of a different contrast than everything else, but that was by design. I don't know. It's it, Jamie. I think it's one of those things that you just learn by osmosis. They don't sit us down and give us a, a, a course of, oh, this is the movie you're working on. You just everyone is eager to do a good job, and you're observing and seeing things, whether it's photographs or film, um, and then you just take it all in. I will say that there was one day that was really inspirational for me. It was toward the end, and uh, they had a finals reel where they showed us a bunch of the work that they were working on. And man, Doug had this amazing sound system. And I don't, I'm not sure why they chose this, but are you familiar with the Plasmatics? It's a very hardcore punk group. Well, that was Great the music name. they were playing. And um, I think the song was A Pig is a Pig. And to see those images for the first time with this really loud, high-quality punk music coming over, was, it was amazing. It really kind of elevated the look and feel of everything. And it was a super exciting thing to see. And I think for, for me, probably the first time that I actually was in the Dailies Theater seeing our work. But actually, um, I have sort of two questions related to that, if I may. Uh, the first sure. one is, I was just curious what your favorite memory of working on it was. And my other question was what it was like to see it for the first time in a theater, I'm assuming, when it came out. Mm -hmm. um, other than the fact that the miniatures were obscured somewhat, just some of your, you know, recollections of seeing your work like that in person. Well, this was so early in my career. I was just thrilled to be making models for a living. It was, I mean, it was a dream come true. And uh, for that project in particular, there were so many great things that I got to work on. After we finished the the main hero spinners. Uh, they needed some back, what they called background spinners. And so Mark Stetson gave me two weeks to build three background spinners. And uh, I went to Chris Ross, who was one of our model makers, but also went to uh, Art Center and was a designer. And I asked him to do a couple sketches, which he did. And then I built those two. And then the, the truck, which was just kind of a kit bash thing. But the great thing was they didn't stay in the background very long. They moved very much front and center. In fact, the very first spinner you see fly by was the one we call the lobster. It was kind of yellow. In fact, hang on one second. This is Chris's drawing for the lobster. Oh, that's awesome. That's amazing. Wow. And then the other one was actually in the script. It was supposed to be a Ferrari. And this was the design he did for that. Wow, that's absolutely based gorgeous. off Sid Mead's existing designs. This one Chris did on his own, but this one is based off of a Sid Mead design. Mm. Wow, kind of a that's variation of that. And this one ended up bright yellow. And this one, because we had already done yellow, this one ended up to be red. In fact, I built recently. I've uh, built two studio scale versions of these. Um, 
I've seen the red one, the Ferrari, in uh, museum exhibits, but I have no idea where the lobster ended up. Also, they did this weird thing when they were shooting the spinners where because they use front light, back light and not blue screen, they were having problems because they were so glossy. So they would shoot the beauty pass of the ship and then they would cover it completely with white tape and then light that to get the mat. And then the next one, they would shoot the mat and then they would pull off the tape. But what that meant, you were putting tape on and off the models constantly and it kind of destroyed the finish on them. So if you ever see photos of the Ferrari, it looks like hell because most of the decals, all the a lot of the paint detail has been ripped off. What were your days like? Uh, like, were they just eight-hour days, work days, or were they longer than that? Oh, God, that? no. No, it was closer to 10, 12. Wow. And then when things like the Voight-Kampf machine came along, it was all weekend, all night long. Hmm. Yeah, that void comp machine is really amazing. Again, one of those things that, like, I, on my wall, I have the um, baseline test. Oh, the baseline machine, test, yeah. Which is a, not, I wouldn't even call it a version of the VK machine, but I think it, it operates similar. But it, obviously, it's a very different look. But the VK machine, I have wanted all of my life. It's this really fascinating, curious object uh, that I've never seen in a film before or since really in terms of like uh, why they were using it and what they were using it for. Um, it was just a, a brilliant, uh, a brilliant piece that you guys came up with. So bravo for that. Um, would you say like constructing? So when you guys had to go back and reconstruct that, what was that like? Like, was it like, okay, here are the plans. This is what you're yep. doing. Or are you just, yep. okay. So and, I and assumed they- I assumed that maybe you guys were like, okay, well, how do we do this? Let's figure the, it out. The good thing about that is we had all been working together for a while. So it was like the team was up to speed. And Mark came in, a gentleman by the name of Mike Fink. I think he was with the production and he was part of that, bringing that project to us. And yeah, they just sat it down. They gave us the blueprints. They said, okay, you do this, you do this, you do this. We'll all come together. And yeah, we banged it out over a very, very long weekend, including the uh, the case that he was carrying it in. But that we just got a really nice high-end attache case. And then I remember wrapping wire around the handle, you know, just all these set dressing things that you would do to try to make it look a little more out of the ordinary. And, you know, Patrick, you, you had asked me two questions. The second one was, what what did I think of the film the first time I saw it? And what was interesting was the first screening I saw was down in San Diego. I think it was a test screening. And um, I was able to get into that. And actually, my parents uh, went as well. We all filled out the things at the end. And, you know, Blade Runner, of all the films I've worked on, it it holds a very unique place in the sense that I think it's really hard to judge its success by any other metric that we normally use, because for me, it was a little disappointing when it came out. Part of it was that you couldn't see the models they were covered, but part of it was also the expectation, oh, this is going to be like Alien, or this is going to be like Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it wasn't. And yet, over the years, it, I think it's just become this classic and it's the whole thing is so iconic and so um, what's the word when people try to recreate it and they use it, they, they use it for inspiration. It's inspired so many different things, so many different movies, so much so that you watch a movie and you go, Oh, they're ripping off Blade Runner. Oh, yep. So, but And then, of course, there are people like you who are these incredible fans that appreciate the film for what it is, not only the film, but the behind the scenes stuff. And I think it just has this cult following that I'm super proud of that transcends the film itself. It's it's just the story of the film, both before it was made, when it was made and after it was made that make it this very unique product. That's beautiful. Um, and I think our listeners will really appreciate hearing that from somebody who worked on it, because I know that the the flame of this film is stronger than it's ever been, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think it would be with or without 2049 coming up, but I think especially having a film come out that many people deem a worthy successor to it, it's just reinvigorated the fandom so much. And here we are, you know, hundreds of episodes into this podcast, six years in with, you know, so much more to talk about and to think about. 
And it's, it must be so interesting for you as somebody who was there making it to know that this thing has had such a life of its own in the ensuing decades. Have other other films that you've worked on had any similar trajectories to mm-hmm, that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, definitely Galaxy Quest was another one that it wasn't a big commercial hit when it came out. But boy, over the years, it has got a cult following and uh, people just love that movie. And I'm super proud of that. Of course, I was the visual effects supervisor on that one. So I have better stories to tell for that project. <laughs> I was just reading a story about Sigourney Weaver in Galaxy Quest today. So funny really? to bring that up. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you work on these these movies. It's a job, but you have to have faith that it's going to be good or it's going to be successful or whatever. And a lot of times they aren't. But with the, the ones that do, like Blake Blade Runner, it just I feel so incredibly lucky to have been a part of it. Can you talk about where your career has taken you? Um, I, I, obviously, you've worked on quite a bit. We don't want or expect you to go through everything but what was the next project you worked on after blade runner and where did you kind of go from there well uh so we talked earlier about greg jean who i worked with for many years uh lauren peterson at the ilm model shop contacted greg and said hey we're expanding we're going to be doing three films at once do you have anybody you would recommend to work in the model shop and very thankfully for me greg gave him my name. And so I actually finished work on the detailing on the top of the police station on like a Friday. And then the following Tuesday showed up to work at ILM. And the the next project I worked on there was Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And but the great thing a- there was after three months, I was in the union and I, I, you know, I could do everything and anything and it wasn't a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. So, so you went to ILM right after Blade, like literally the week after Blade yep. Runner, and yep. then you've been there since, correct? You're still working with ILM now. Yep, forty-two years later. Wow, that's amazing. So, what, give us some like you know brief highlights so we can you know for our listeners to be able to look for more Bill George work, you know, and movies <laughs> that they love. Like, what are some other things you worked on that you think, especially things that have particularly interesting VFX work that Blade Runner fans might appreciate? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so I did start working in the, the model shop at ILM and building spaceships. I worked on Star Trek II, Star Trek III. Um, and then a project came along that was really unique and fun and one of my all-time favorites, which was Space. And what was great about that is we went from these hard surface models. Uh, of course, there were some hard surface models in it, but a lot of it was inside of the body. And I was a huge Fantastic Voyage fan as a kid. I was just thinking about that film, yes. So it was like, oh my God, this is going to be amazing. So we were making fat cells and fallopian tubes and stomach contents, <laughs> and the uh, cochlea, and the, the optic nerve and all these things. And it was much more sculptural and fun. And uh, so that that's a, a movie that I'm really, really proud of and was a, a highlight of my career. Here's one question that I always like to ask people who've worked on the original Blade Runner. What did you think of the sequel? I liked it. I didn't love it. But I liked it. I felt right. that the whole what I loved about the original was kind of the simplicity of, you know, humanity becoming less humane and what is the meaning of life and i remember the first time i saw the film i was really confused by rooker howard's performance it's like why is he acting like a goofball and then i realized he's a four-year-old that's why he's acting like this even though he may have memories and stuff he's basically a big four-year-old and um what i felt i I don't know i felt like the the whole replicant versus human concept got a little for me at least got a little muddled in the second one interesting all right yeah yeah i mean that's we have varying uh opinions on of Mm -hmm. course we we absolutely love the film but uh yeah it's definitely a shift um in in terms of what ridley scott was doing and what even though ridley scott produced 2049 but what denise decided (laughs) to do in well of course of course yeah and it's boy that's a tough thing to do if you're going to do a sequel to an incredibly oh popular God. film that's right. uh, but boy incredibly stylish and of course Roger Deakins work which won him an academy award right i think that mm. was it was it that one i think so it was yep. yes yep. It, yeah. his first 
And what yep. did you think of uh, of what a workshop's miniatures in that? Oh, well, I, the, the visual effects work is amazing. So I think <laughs> to back up a little, my only issue was more with the script and story. It wasn't with the visuals. I think it was incredible, just really striking and beautiful and definitely kind of added on a whole nother layer to what had been done before. I think that was a big success. And then was just have- my own personal, you know, I, I don't want to come off as trying to bash the film. I, no, no. I enjoyed it, but... I'm probably going to get hate mail now. Sorry. <laughs> no, okay. it's a valid perspective. And it's one that gets, you know, brought up all the time. It's it's not like a movie that everybody has universally great feelings about. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting, especially when we have people on who were associated with the first movie, which we've been lucky to have now many times, um, the responses to that question are really all over the place. And I think there's, there's a lot of really valid reasons for that. So yeah, never, never apologize. There's no hate mail coming. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> what do you have coming down the line like that you could talk about that you've worked on? Uh, well, I just finished a Disney project, which I can't talk about, unfortunately, but it comes out next year. Uh, the other project I just finished is the uh, Sphere, the Darren Aronofsky film, Postcards from Earth, that was done for the Sphere in Las Vegas. Wow. Um, in 2008, I wanted to do a show to learn how to how to work in stereo and so i took on the star tours project because that was being done in stereo and it was a great decision because not too long after that disney bought us and there's a ton of media that needs to be created for disney theme park rides and it's really challenging high frame rate moving eye point and my career just kind of moved into that and so i've been doing a lot of special venue projects over the past decade that is the, awesome. The um, I got to work on Rise of the Resistance and Galaxy's Edge. I don't know if you guys have written that, but it's pretty epic. And the Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind that's back at Epcot. That was very fun. Rise of the Resistance is the best ride I've ever been on in my life. I, <laughs> I, I So I'm a way late bloomer in most aspects of my life. I had never been to Disney anything until this past year in my 40s. Oh, wow. So um, I can't remember exactly. I think it was July, late mid to late July. I went to Disney for the second time that month, um, and I went on the Rise of the Resistance. And I didn't know what to expect. I just had no idea. You don't know. Um, and I get on this ride, and I, you know, you get into that one ship that they're taking you to another one, and all of a sudden the door opens, and you're in a completely different place. But obviously that ship is static. So, and it's not like it turned or anything. You have no idea how they did what they did. And then they move you through like you're on the, the, uh, star destroyer. I cannot, I was like a five-year-old. I, 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 I was like, I want to watch star Wars. And I'm not a big star Wars fan anymore. Um, but yeah, it was unbelievable. Yeah. It's 24 minutes long or something like that from start to finish. It's really big. And they throw everything at you. I remember I because working on it, I worked on it for about two and a half years. You go down for a section and you're looking at a mm-hmm. section. And say, so it wasn't until the very end that I saw it all from beginning to end. And I took turned to a colleague and I said, what just happened? <laughs> like, it was <laughs> overwhelming. Absolutely overwhelming. Again, I, I still don't like me and a friend who's an IT guy who I was there with him and his wife. Uh, he we we just sat there talking like, well, how did they do this one part? And we're like, well, maybe they did this. And he's like, no, they couldn't have done this because of this over here. I'm like, well, then this ship here is static. So maybe it went down. He's like, no, we didn't. It doesn't go down. There's nowhere to go. We already we are already down. So where did it go? No idea. I love it. That to me is what I captured me about films as a child is watching something that is magic. And Patrick and I have had this discussion recently in terms of the magic of cinema. And I feel like Blade Runner really continues to hold that magic where you're, you're, you know, we're talking with you and you're telling us how you helped to create this blimp, but we look at it and I still don't understand it. I still it's more magical for some reason now that I know yeah. about it. I don't, I, don't, I still yeah. don't get that. Yeah. Well, and that's okay. You know, I mean, like so many people, all three of us are focused on kind of understanding how these things are done. And I think that's born out of the love of it. You want to know more and you want to know more, but sometimes that can ruin it. I think mystery is a very wonderful thing. 
And um, like you, early films, when I was 10 years old, my mom said, what do you want for your birthday? And I said, I want to see this new movie called Planet of the Apes. And it scared the crap out of me. And it's one of my all-time favorite movies at the same time. I, there's just something about the, that ape makeup that is just, it, it just, I don't know, it hits me somewhere. Yes. There's just something about it that works. Yes. Total uh, magic. It is. And it's still like how many years, for 50 years later, 55 years later, you yeah. can watch Planet of the Apes, the original film. And that makeup and costuming and prosthetics, it is absolutely believable. Now, obviously, the talking is a little bit different. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit better these days. But <laughs> you don't you don't believe you don't like I believe that those are ape-like creatures like they don't seem like human people 55 60 years later it's just incredible i love that movie well and not only that they're they're very lovable you know i think that's another thing they achieved which is really hard to do is making these creatures where you don't see anything other than the people's eyes and yet you care for them it's incredible we're, we we got to wrap because we're coming up to the one hour mark and we want to be respectful of your time and, and grateful for it before we go, one thing I want to ask you about, but did you see Phil Tippett's Mad God? Mm -hmm. I did. Yeah. What did. did you think of that? Because I know that's oh. that's VFX heavy, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's all, you know, it's stop motion. Yeah. I mean, there, there was some live action stuff in it, but um, well, a number of my friends worked on it. I don't know if you know Mark Dubow, but he's a huge Blade Runner fan and he worked on it. Um, and I know Phil from years ago working with him on the Star Wars movies. And so it, I I thought it was super entertaining, a little bit disturbing, um, kind of all those things, and really, really enjoyed seeing it. And I think it's pure 100% Phil, too. <laughs> it's got his humor. It's got his irreverence. It, it really, if you know him, you look at the movie and you go, yep, yep, that's Phil. <laughs> that movie is a trip and a half. Let me tell you, that's an incredible film. Bill, thank you so much for being here today. We really, really appreciate it. And I got to say, you know, I've seen Blade Runner 200 times. So I'm going to watch it again tonight because I just want to oh. look at the blip again. <laughs> and I'll be thinking of this conversation uh, the whole time. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank you, uh, all of you who listened to the show. And we will be back for another episode soon. See you soon. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.